Hey, good morning. Good morning. Uh, we welcome you if you're a visitor this morning. And we hope and we, we pray that uh, you are encouraged this morning. And uh, you, f- you feel welcomed. And um, to those of, uh, of the body here uh, this morning who is in the sanctuary this morning, who have served in the last few weeks downstairs, I know we've got a couple, uh, but it was your very first time. Would you raise your hand if you served downstairs? I know Jeremiah and Amy, you both served down. Anybody else served downstairs for the first time? Viola, did you serve down? Okay, Cindy, okay. Uh, I want to say thank you because you guys, when you serve downstairs like that, you know, you're out of the loop for a little while, and sometimes you, you can feel somewhat disconnected. And uh, uh, most people leave church feeling encouraged and strengthened. Sometimes when you leave downstairs, it's, you feel a little different, right? <laughs> sometimes it's a little different experience. And, uh, but what you're doing downstairs in the lives of our children uh, is just a, a blessing. and it, It's awesome. And I just want you to know that it's noted and it's appreciated, all right? All right. I'm, I'm going to try to get Dwayne down there working with the kids. And uh, we're going <laughs> to, he's a child at heart, and we're going to see what that looks like. But uh, uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Exodus, and uh, we are actually journeying into Exodus chapter 20 um, this morning. And, uh, but uh, to, to transition uh, into 20, I just want to kind of do a, a, a brief refresher of what we covered last week. We were in chapter 19, and we had uh, looked at uh, verses 16 through 25. And a couple of things that we talked about last week was the fact that uh, when, when God spoke and God expressed himself, uh, it set in the hearts of the children of Israel uh, this fear. As a matter of fact, the, the Hebrew word is harad, and it means to be terrified, Right? Well, as we studied last week, we understood that the presence of God not only terrified the hearts of the people, and that included Moses, and, and the New Testament actually referenced that, and we've covered that, and, uh, but God's presence also had an effect on the mountains. As a matter of fact, when God's presence fell on the mountains, the scripture says, and the mountains trembled greatly, and it's the exact same word uh, in uh, defining or describing uh, the terror in the hearts of the people as uh, uh, describing the response of the mountains. And so when we looked at that within context, we understood, right, that God has a reach and an influence over not just our own hearts, but even the circumstances and the conditions around us. When God's power and his presence can affect animate and inanimate objects, that's something to behold, right? And so that, that's a powerful thought, powerful, powerful thought to take into your hearts. And uh, another thing that we noticed uh, Uh, last week, remember Moses was called back up to the top of Mount Sinai. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that God descended to the top of the mountain and Moses was called up to the top of the mountain. So it's kind of of a funny visual, isn't it? Uh, to, To reach the apex, the paramount location, we must ascend and it requires God to descend, right? 
And, and remember, it was, it was roughly around 7,500 feet above uh, sea level. So it's about a four, four and a half hour climb to the top of Mount Sinai. And you can do that even today. They do tours today if you want to do that. But we're talking about a cat who's 80 years old climbing four, four and a half hours up a mountain. He gets up to the mountain. And let, let me say this because I alluded to it last week. Remember, th there's a cost in following God. Sometimes there's a sacrifice Sometimes we got to put the sweat in. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, sometimes it's just a labor of love sometimes. And, and sometimes to move forward with God, it's going to require us to do some things that aren't necessarily comfortable or convenient. But the funny thing about the scripture is Moses gets up there. This cat, 87 years old, he climbs up to the top of the mountain, right? Four, four and a half hours. He gets up to the top of the mountain. And what does God say to him? Go back down. Right? That's one of those things, you know, because we can't stay up there, right? You know, it's a beautiful thing to be called up there to, to meet God, to experience God's presence and His goodness just to surround us and, in, and to engulf us. But God isn't going to allow you and I to be filled with His Spirit, His love, and His power just to set us off into uh, in a corner uh, uh, just so we can enjoy His presence in such a manner. God's got a purpose and a plan and, and a message for us, and He typically sends us out... Uh, he may let us sit there for a while, but we're not going to stay there. He sends us out with that same message. And that's what he does to Moses. He sends him back down the mountain, right? And he sends him back down the, mess, down the mountain with a message of, of really a protect, protection because he wasn't wanting any of the people to perish. It was a message of salvation or at least a warning to the people not to touch the mountain, not to go beyond the barriers or the borders, the margins that God had established. And so he goes back down the mountain and he tells the people, matter of fact, he says to God, he said, why do you want me to tell them again? I've already told them that. Moses operating under the assumption that surely they'll listen, right? Surely Dennis listens every time Kim tells him something, right? I know Arnett listens every time Terry tells him something. Amy, I'm sure Jeremiah listens every time you say something. Ben, I know you don't listen when Darcy tells you things. She's told me. Okay, but, but, but he, he responds and he says basically, Lord, I've already told them that. And Moses operating under the assumption that they, they would have listened, having that knowledge, yet God sends them down with the exact same message. And ultimately Moses goes down and he tells them the exact same message. And you and I have a message from God regarding Christ, the goodness of Jesus, that's an unchangeable message. And, Many times people have heard that message. Many times they've resisted that message. Many times they've not listened, though they've heard it. They've not listened. And yet, because they don't listen doesn't mean the message changes. We still present that message. That's the only message you and I got, you know, right? I mean, do we have another message? I think not. And so Moses goes down and he tells the people. Now that's where we're going to pick up. We're, we're about to transition from Moses speaking to the people the message that they had already heard and then we transition into chapter 20. And in chapter 20 is God speaks. Now this is a pretty powerful portion of scripture. And before we start to divide it and work our way through it, we're going to, we're going to pray we're going to ask God for some great aid and assistance. Not just in me speaking to you this morning, but you hearing. Not so much hearing what I've got to say, but hearing what the Spirit and the Word of God has to say to Ashland. Ashland drove all the way down uh, from eastern Kentucky, so uh, I, I want to make this worth your wild, you know, this morning uh, uh, by sharing the goodness of God's Word. Amen? Amen. So let's, let's just pray. Father, in Jesus' name, We just exhale and inhale 
And Father, we just pray this morning that we do not find ourselves in the way of what it is that you're wanting to speak to your sons and your daughters. But instead, Lord, we'll just be moved along in the Spirit, by the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit as we navigate this scripture we look, we study what it is that we will study today. We'll glean truth that is applicable in a comfortable manner and we'll glean truth, Lord, that rubs us the wrong way. And yet, Lord, this morning our heart's cry is let us make whatever concession that is necessary that that truth would fit us. Let us be conformed to that. We don't want to change the truth, Lord, and end up with something that's not even the truth, but we want to be altered and changed and by your truth. And so, Father, speak through these stammering lips and, and to the hearts of those that are within the hearing of my voice and the reading and preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, right here. <clears throat> Chapter 20, verse 1 through 11. We're going to cover all 10 of the Ten Commandments this morning. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Mm. Mm. I, heard, I, heard, I, heard, I heard the pitter-patter of shoes about to go out of this sanctuary. You got almost a mass exodus while we're studying the book of Exodus. Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to look, we're going to try to get through uh, the first four commandments. And, and, the reason, and we may not make it. We may not make it. We, not, we may not make it. But if, if we don't make it, it'll be determined by the Spirit. All right? Because I, I can preach in a room by myself. So whether you're conscious or you're not conscious, I, I'll keep on preaching. You know, I, I see, I'm, and you know that. You know that. All right? Hey, let's look at these verses right here, 1 through 11, okay? And this is what the Scripture says. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Now I want, you to, I want you to imagine this. The backdrop is trembling, shaking, terrified mountains, clouds of smoke, pillars of fire, lightning, and thunder. It isn't some cat standing behind a black pulpit you know, with his shirt untucked speaking. It's not that image with a few lights on a wall. This is God speaking. The backdrop is as I just described. This would be a terrifying experience if you're a mere man witnessing this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. At this moment, you're listening, man. I mean, you're listening. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your, your God. For I, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers uh, on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless 
who takes his name in vain. Then remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen. 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 Let's look at this scripture. Let's go all the way back to verse 1. And there's, there's some significant things in this, okay? The scripture says, And God spoke all these words, saying, now, I want you to understand the authority that's establishing these precepts are not in the precepts themselves, but is in the source in which the precepts are being delivered. The authority is in God himself. And he makes it clear, right here in the scripture, makes it clear that it is God who is doing the speaking. So everything that is about to follow regarding what God is saying are not suggestions. These are not ideas. These aren't uh, uh, things to be considered. These are commands. These, are, these, are, these, these are, are the truths of God that are coming out that will establish an entire culture, generations, and a covenant between God and his children, the people of Israel. These are not political positions in which, will be, uh, which the outcomes of these will be determined by your, your votes in, in some election cycle. These things are eternal. And the authority by which these things are being spoken is God. Okay? And we have to understand that. And that's one of the questions that you and I, as followers of Jesus, is we have to concede, recognize, acknowledge to some degree, is what is the Word of God to us as individuals? Is it an authority or is it just another thought, ideology, philosophy that we sometimes will give ourselves over to? Sometimes it will guide our lives, but the moment it rubs us the wrong way, we buck up against the authority. Carrie and I, and I don't know how many of you guys watch it. Let me say this, because i got some people who have asked me about this. Uh, me and several families here, we, we actually employ something. Uh, it's a TV service, and there's a couple of different TV services. One's called ClearPlay, and one's called VidAngel. And these, these are services that, that you can pay for that uh, makes movies uh, uh, acceptable. You can edit movies to whatever degree you want to edit them. Great tools, great tools that are available. I say all that because whenever I reference something and someone's got that look in their eye like, I can't believe... Do you know what they said in that movie? No, I don't know what they said because it's been edited out. I have no idea. So I say all that just to protect my integrity before you that you're not thinking, Trent Evans is out there watching a bunch of trash, and then he's up here talking about God on Sunday, okay? So if you want a little more information about VidAngel or ClearPlay, you can get with Taryn Root over there, and she'll hook you up. And uh, you may be able to employ the same services. But having said all that, I'll say this. Carrie and I, a couple years ago, we were watching a, a program on Netflix, and it was called The Crown. How many of you have seen The Crown? You've seen The Crown? Okay, okay. And, and, and it's, uh, no one else has seen The Crown. Okay, just maybe Miss Kathy, Terry. Okay, anybody out there that doesn't have clear play and watch The Crown? <laughs> I'm just kidding, just kidding. Okay, don't want to raise your hand? Okay, all right. 
All right, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the show The Crown, it's a depiction of Queen Elizabeth, you know, and her, her, her rise to the throne and some of her early experiences and whatnot. One of the things that I noticed in watching The Crown, and, and then especially in looking back since, since she just passed away and whatnot, is the deep reverence the people, the British people had for the queen. Now, I mean, it was an incredible sight to behold. If you watched any of the funeral, you saw it. You witnessed it, I mean, firsthand. Celebrities and, and people from every walk of life standing for hours and hours and hours at her funeral just to get a glimpse of her at her funeral to pay respect and, and, and to honor her and whatnot. But the one thing that I learned, and, and I watched some of the interactions during World War II that she had with Winston Churchill and whatnot, to whatever degree these were accurate, I watched these and I found it somewhat intriguing. The thing that I walked away from that understanding uh, of the crown watching it was the fact that she had a great deal of respect, she had a great deal of honor, she was acknowledged, but you know what she didn't have? Authority. She literally has zero authority. Even the royal family now, and it'll be uh, King Charles, I suppose, uh, has zero authority. Though he has influence, he can't change policy. He can't make decisions for the government. He can't invoke uh, uh, articles of war. He can't do any of those things. But he is a very respected and honored, or he will be, uh, individual because of the position that he holds. But there is no authority. And sometimes we as followers of Jesus have the exact same relationship with God's Word. We have a lot of respect for it. We, have a lot, we acknowledge it. We honor it. I mean, we got the biggest Bible sitting on our coffee tables, right? I mean, we got the, I mean, they're beautiful. I mean, we, you know what I'm, we post on our Facebook, the Scripture. We post on Instagram, you know, on every social media platform. I mean, we're throwing the scripture out there. We respect it in that sense, but we don't allow it to have any authority in our lives. We look at it, we perceive it, uh, much like the people would the position of queen or king of England. Respecting, acknowledging, and honoring God's word isn't the same thing as allowing it to have authority in our lives. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And as we begin to open this up, these Ten Commandments, this Decalogue, if you will, when we begin to open it, we've got to understand the authority that declares these very words. And this isn't something to be dismissed. Not only that, as this thing unfolds, we've got to understand, going back to chapter 19, the intentions and the motives of God. God obviously laid it bare before the people. He said, this is what I'm wanting to do for you. So every time we read these scriptures, we hear these Ten Commandments, we've got this visual sometimes in our minds for whatever reason of this tyrant God invoking all these prohibitions as though he's withholding from us some good thing when in all reality he's protecting us. He's wanting to do for us. He's wanting to love us. I mean, if you were to ask my kids or their friends when my kids were younger, they'd say, hey, man, you're, you're, your dad's strict on you, Clark. Taylor's friends might say, hey, Taylor, your, your dad is strict on you. But I guarantee you, you know what Taylor and Clark could tell them without, beyond any shadow of a doubt? Oh, you, you don't understand my dad. He loves us. He loves us. And so whatever prohibitions I had placed on their life, they knew it was governed by my love for them. 
And so when we start to read these scriptures, if we've got a perspective where God is withholding certain things from us and somehow, man, he's not letting us enjoy the good life, we need to understand these prohibitions have been established from the heart and the love of God, Jay. He's wanting the best for us. You with me? And so he, he declares these things by his authority, and he needs no other authority. And this is what the scripture says right here. It says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, the pronoun your is a second person singular. You know what that means? It's second person singular. It means he's speaking to the whole, but he's doing it as individuals. It's just, it's just like if I were to have my children in a room and I were to say to Clark and I were to say to Taylor, I am your father. I am speaking to those in the room, but I'm speaking to each of them individuals because it is true. It is a second person singular, so he's addressing the nation of Israel. He's addressing the Hebrew people, those gathered there that have been brought out in the Exodus. He's addressing them as individual people and the whole. Are you with me? You track with this? And this is what the scripture says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He establishes who he is. He establishes what he had delivered them from. Right? You see that. He did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. 400 years, man, in Egypt. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it's not just who he is or what he's delivered them from, but it's what he's delivered them to. What he's delivered them to was freedom. So everything that you think is going to be covered or surrounded by these prohibitions of the law, it's not, it's, it isn't slavery, it's not bondage, it's freedom. Freedom is found within the constraints of God's laws and such. He's not taking you out of bondage. I didn't, bring, I didn't take you out of bondage to bring you back into bondage. I've taken you out of bondage to bring you into freedom. And it doesn't matter whether or not you think it looks like freedom because it is freedom, real freedom. Because there's times that we thought we were free when in fact we were in bondage. We were doing what we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, and how we wanted to do it. And yet it lent itself to shackles and chains. You know this to be true. He establishes who he was, what he had done, and what he had done in delivering them into freedom. And he establishes all of that once again. This is God speaking. He establishes all that once again prior to giving the commands. Now this isn't, this isn't something different uh, than what we find in the New Testament as well. As a matter of fact, this is going to be New Testament drop number one. Okay, and it's found in, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 12, right? Verses 1 and 2. Literally the same thing is being laid out. God has said to them right here in Exodus, considering what I've done for you, consider all this stuff. Let's read what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, considering what God has done, right? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is to know God, to really know God. And then he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You know, don't be conformed to your own Egypts. Don't let, don't let your Egypts shape you. Don't let your Egypts conform you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be delivered. Be, 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 be given freedom by the renewing of your own mind. Then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will that's about to be laid out in these commands that God's about to give. These ten commands that God's about to give, through those commands you're going to be able to establish what God's perfect will is. His good and pleasing will. Not so different, is it? And prior to starting on this very first one, and we may only get through two. I'm, I'm going to do that for you this morning. All right. I, I love in Matthew chapter 22, this is New Testament drop number two right here. I love in Matthew chapter 22, when the Pharisees had come to Jesus and they'd come to Jesus, man, with a, with a backward and a, and a skewed uh, uh, agenda to test him with the, the hope and aspirations of tricking him into a failing response. They come to Jesus and this is what they say to Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them a lawyer. It's always a lawyer. Do we have any lawyers in here? <laughs> and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now you can imagine this joke. He throws it out there and he steps back. And you can hear all of his buddies say, oh, good one, good one. Let's hear him answer this one. We got him. Good job, Daryl Isaacs. <laughs> you know, the lawyers, the, you know what I'm talking about? Good job. You know, you know, if he was a lawyer, his last name was Greenberg. You know it was, right? Right? All right, listen, listen. He, he was Jewish, a Jewish lawyer. All right? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, this is the response of Jesus. The response of Jesus pertaining to the law and the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying these two laws right here, everything else is commentary. Everything else is commentary. These two laws, upon these, two, these are the nails on the wall by which all things hang. And when we start to read these commands from God, we're going to recognize how true that really is. Because if you can do those two things, then everything else will take care of itself. You don't love your neighbor and steal from them. You don't love your neighbor and lie to them. You don't love your neighbor and covet them. You see what I'm talking about? You don't love God and take his name in vain. You don't love God and have other gods before him. You don't love God and, and ignore Sabbath worship. You don't... Do you see what I'm saying? Now, I do want to say this to establish the first four commandments are vertical in a sense. They're directed towards God. They're in response to God. 
right? We've got a vertical line here. The last six commandments are somewhat horizontal. Uh, they, they speak to the relationships between, uh, uh, between men. So you've got to see this image, right? And the image that's being painted is one of a horizontal or a, a vertical line and one of a horizontal line. And in so doing, we see the image of the cross, right? And you see Jesus basically in his response to the commandments, which is the greatest. You can almost see this image being depicted, right? It's a beautiful image. Now, you and I refer to these as the Ten Commandments, right? And we're in chapter 20 and, and God is speaking these. But in all reality, the Ten Commandments aren't delivered until chapter 34. Or at least the verbiage, the word, the term, the Ten Commandments isn't delivered until Exodus chapter 34, verses 27 and 28. And it said, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, in, in Hebrew, the word commandments is debar. In the Greek, in the Greek, and the Septuagint and what would be used in the New Testament, it is, a, it is a decalogue. Some of you have heard that term used and, and people will reference that. And it's, it's derived out of two words. It, it's a real simplification of, of the Ten Commandments. Decalogue is derived out of, uh, from the word deca meaning ten and logos meaning the word. And so decalogue literally would be translated in the Greek for you and I in, in, the, new, in the hearing of the New Testament people, God's Ten words. Words, logos that are alive. These ten words, do, they're not merely words, but they're alive and inspired and life-giving. The Decalogue. And so here we are. The first command, and this is what he says. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, this statement is made directly after him declaring what he had done, right? And you, once again, is in the second person singular, meaning he is speaking to the group, but he's speaking to each individual in the group. He is saying to Brooke, Brooke, you shall have no other gods before me. He is saying to Jeff, Jeff, you shall have no other gods before me. To Dwayne, to Brandon, to Terry, to Jeremiah, to Kevin, to, to Gabe, to, to, to Ben, to Darcy, to Jay. I mean, on and on. He's speaking to, he's speaking to Danny and he's speaking to Monica. And he says, you shall have no other God before me. And the reality is this for you and I is it requires a response, though he's speaking to the whole, it requires a response to God on an individual level. So when God is speaking to them this moment, and after this, every time you is used, it is used in the second person singular, meaning every one of these commands, each individual person must give an account for. Meaning you can't push these off. Well, they don't do it. Well, he's not doing it. They're not listening. She's not listening. That's not the point. The only person you'll be culpable for is you. And God is addressing each individual Hebrew in his hearing at this moment. This is your responsibility to respond to me based on what I'm saying now. It doesn't matter if everyone else goes along with it or not. That doesn't allow you to escape responsibility. You shall have no other gods before me. God is basically stating in this moment, 
I am a God who sits alone on the throne. Are you got, you got that? I am a God who sits alone on the throne, and I alone am on that throne. There is no room for anything else, anyone else. There's no room for your job. There's no room for, for your relationships. There's no room for your finances. There's no room for your plans. There's no room on the throne of your heart for any of those things to nudge God off. Now, you and I have a tendency to do that, do we not? Now, what I, what I have a tendency to do is whenever these things are inflamed in my heart, uh, I don't want God, God completely off. I just got, I just nudge them. I just, and I, and I make that one seater a two seater. And I'm, I, now we were at the daycare the other day, and I talked to Jeff about this uh, this morning. And uh, there's there's times where nudgers, right? But um, we were at the daycare, and uh, Taylor was actually describing how how it all went down, and. Um, Little Joshua was sitting in his little chair, and he was, he, you know, he's, he's down with it. You know, he's been at the daycare, you know, a couple years, his whole life. You know, he's down with the daycare. He understands daycare life. You know, he's living the best life he can at daycare. And uh, uh, he's sitting there in a chair, and little, little Abigail. Now, Abigail is like a little gangster. She's a little mobster. You know, hey, hey I'm straight up. She's covert. She's stale. She looks sweet. She looks like she's, the, you know, she, she's the sweet of the, of the daycare. Hey, she's flat out gangster. She's a gangster. And so she walks up there. She's like a hitman. She don't, you don't know she's coming. You don't know it before it's too late. You know, pow, you're gone, you're done. That's how it happens. And so she walks up there. Taylor says, Joshua just said it. He was all cool, living good. Said little Abigail walked up there. Straight up gangster, looks around. Said she's just kind of looking around. He said, Joshua, poof. <laughs> Joshua flopped out of the floor. He's laying in the floor crying, looking up. I said, well, what did, uh, what did Abigail do? Taylor said, she took his chair. I said, gangster. She's straight up gangster, right? I mean, hitman, right? And sometimes we do that, right? Sometimes we nudge God. Sometimes we, and then other times we just straight up resist God and we do just like Joshua and Abigail and we find ourselves just, pushing God right off that spot and we say the authority that you have in my life at this given moment is no longer in play because I'm living by my authority. I've become my God. I'm calling the shots. You know, you know, you know. Jesus, in reference, in reference to this first command, refers to it, and we just read it, as the great and first command. You know why? Because from this command, everything else floats. We dislodge ourselves from this truth and we have dislodged ourselves from the rest of it. It is like building a house on sand. No foundation whatsoever. And things will be weak. Things will be subject to conditions and circumstances. And things will crumble. Jesus goes on to define 
even how we keep God first. When he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus says, do you want to understand what the great and first commandment is and how it how, It's your very essence must long desire God above everything else. Oh, God, help us, Daniel, when a heart's desire is after something that's challenging God's position on the throne of our heart. When we look at those things and we look at God and we choose that. Oh, what a heartbreaking thing when we do that, understanding what he has done for us, and yet we choose to dislodge him. And the first commandment said, that's not acceptable. You should have no other gods before me. And then the next one. You, once again, second person singular, says this. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. It is important that we not only respond and recognize the one true God, but to worship him in truth. Now you say, well, what are you talking about, Trent? I'm talking about when people say, and you'll hear people say this kind of nonsense, right? Man, I've heard people say this. I've got people in my family who have said this. Me and God's got our own thing going. You ever heard somebody say something crazy like that? We've got our own thing going. As though the precepts and statutes of the scripture doesn't apply to them. What they're doing is they're worshiping the true God in a false manner. And in so doing, in a false manner, it's not real worship. You see what I'm talking about? So Moses is saying to them, man, don't be making images. Don't be, don't be worshiping the true God in a manner that's not real. That's not acceptable. That is false. And they had come out of a culture. They had, they had laid uh, in bed with a culture that it produced this type of responses to their gods. They were indoctrinated with this type of stuff. That it wasn't just, uh, uh, in their minds, it, it wasn't so much that it was, whether it was the right God or, or not the right God or, or the way that they were doing it. It was just they were doing something. They were doing and sometimes within the church and within our culture and whatnot, we see a lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm following Jesus my way, my truth. You've heard that? I'm living, I'm loving God in a way I've designed. And in so doing, really not loving God at all. Because God doesn't accept your love on those terms. He only accepts your love on his terms. And he lays that out. He lays that out. We do not dictate how we do this. God's word, his revelation, dictates our response to him. Tim Chester says this. He says, this is to reduce God to something of our own making. Not necessarily replacing him, but to make him more manageable when we do this. 
Oh, you can see that, can't you? When you create God in your own image, you create God in your own likeness, you create God in a manner uh, that is more palatable for you, more manageable, not as difficult, easier to swallow. To understand him according to our own notions rather than according to his revelation in his word. Now, I want you to read because we've already established not to do this. Though we have a tendency to do it. But he says in, in, in this command that there would be a fallout to not adhering to this. And this is what he says. You shall not bow down to serve, bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, who hates God? Who hates God? The scripture clearly lays out who hates God. Clearly, he likens those who worship him outside of the truth of who he is and who his word has revealed him to be as ones who hate him. Read it contextually. Don't do this. If you do this, this is the outcome. He's literally saying in this moment, you can't love me and do it your way. And if you reject me and do it your way, you hate me. And you know what's sad about that scripture? It is speaking to a group of people whom God loves who will soon reject him on this very basis. And so when we see the outpouring of God's judgment upon even these people that he has called his own, even to the extent of death, we say, how can God be such a tyrant when God has already identified them, whether they have spoken or not, as individuals who hate him? Have you ever thought when you approach God in the manner in which you approach God and you call the shots and you make the decisions, have you ever thought that's born out of your hatred for God and God's authority? You're resisting God. That's a powerful thought. That's something to consider. That's something to consider. I've said this many times and I'll say it again. People who worship a God of love without truth and a God of truth without love is not worshiping the God of the scriptures. I don't know, I don't know what, where you got that God at. If you worship this love concept that's absent of truth, that's not the God of the Bible. And if you're worshiping truth in itself, absent of love, that's not the God of the Bible. What did Jesus say to the, to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well? When she said, hey, the Jews worship there, we worship here. We got our thing going, they got our, their thing going. What did Jesus say? There's coming a time where people will worship in spirit 
and in truth. In their being and in truth. And that's what God has called us to. He's called us to. I'm going to cover this, this third one, and we're going to cover it briefly. We're going to close, okay? And then God speaks this, and he says these words. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Shav is the word in the Hebrew. You know what it means when we read the word vain translated in English? You know what it means? To empty. Empty. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God and empty it of its value, of its reverence, and of its respect, and of its its authority. We oftentimes want to read the scripture, we want to conclude it means something about taking God's name and attaching it to a swear word or, or something of that nature. But it's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than that. Moses was saying, don't conduct, the scripture, God is saying, here in this moment, don't empty me of my essence and who I really am. Visually, it's like taking a picture of of God in in liquid form and the way we conduct our lives, it's basically before the world, we're taking that picture and we're just turning it upside down and we're emptying him. That's what he's really saying. The things that we say, the places we go, the way we conduct ourselves, are our lives empty in God? Meaning the people we come into contact with is God being devalued by the life that we're living. The things that we're saying. The disciples come to Jesus. New Testament drop. In chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. And this is what they said to Jesus. They were inquiring. Hey, you get it, right? You, if you're going to inquire of someone, it's Jesus you're going to inquire of. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Literally the first thing that Jesus says in regards to approaching God is the opposite of emptying, hallowing, revering, setting it apart, esteeming it. This is the response of Jesus. I don't want to live a life, Carl, that when you encounter me, you leave having experienced Trent emptying or diminishing the character and the goodness of God. None of us should be wanting to live a life in such a manner that we empty him. But the scripture doesn't end there. It says this. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, who empties his name. 
Jesus echoes these sentiments, and we'll close with this. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 36, 37, remember the Pharisees had claimed to Jesus. Remember, Jesus was healing, setting people free, man, liberating people. He was doing things the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't do. You remember their charge against Jesus? You remember what they said to Jesus? They empty him, or they try to empty him. You know how they do it? They say, man, the work that he's doing, he's doing by the prince of Beelzebub, prince of demons. And they try to empty him of his glory and of his identity. They just turn him over. So the works that he does, he, he does through the power of the devil. Do you know what Jesus' response to them was? It was this. But I tell you that everyone will, have to, everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. You know what he was saying? You want to empty me? Pharisee, Sadducee, you want to empty me? You want to try to dilute me, diminish me? And in so doing, you will give an account for every empty word you have spoken. That's what he said. For by your word you will be acquitted, and by your word you will be condemned. And so here we are, 100 opposite way, working our way through the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And we're right here at Commandment 3. Something so simple. And the question that you and I ask, and we're closing with this question, is considering what God has done and what he has established, putting me first, right? That's what he said, put me first. I'm first. And do it the right way. My truth. Not your own truth. And in so doing, don't empty me. Because you know what happens? When we don't do it based on God's truth, our effect is an emptying effect. And that's something that you and I ought not to be doing in the lives in which we're living. Stand with me this morning. With our heads bowed just for a moment, and our eyes closed just for a moment, just for a moment. The life you live in, I want you to really be honest with yourself and respond to God. Are you emptying the name of God? 
the way you're conducting yourself with the interactions at work, the interactions with your brothers, your sisters, the interaction with your neighbors, your family, your whatever it is, your husband, your wife, your, your sons, your daughters, your mothers, your fathers. The way you conduct your life as those who profess the love of Jesus, having been born in them, is the life you're living, is it emptying God of his glory? I hope and I pray that it's not. I hope and I pray that it's not. Because what I know God wants to be doing in your life, He wants to be using you to expand His kingdom, to deliver His message to a people who so desperately need it, and to deliver that message intact. Intact. Father, in Jesus' name, we look through just a few portions of the scripture. And Lord, there's been times, Father, that I've read that scripture from a perspective that seems so hard and restrictive. But oh God, would I understand your heart? The rescuing efforts you demonstrated into the lives of your children. Oh God, what other response, Lord, can we have? Would we see that clearly? But a response of adoration, of love, honoring, revering, with a humble spirit submitting under your authority. That's what I see your heart. All these things draw me to you. And God, what I pray this morning is that we don't see the prohibitions and the restrictions as some heavy weighted law, but a gift to provide and protect us, even at times, Lord, from ourselves. Father, I have never come out on the short end of things when I've honored your word. Never have I regretted that. But oh God, how heavy the regrets. When I resisted and I pushed you from the throne, from that authoritative position, and I made my own decisions. Oh, how heavy the regret of those decisions. And how I felt, I found safety and security within the confines of your love and your direction, Lord. So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for establishing the margins and the boundaries.
I thank you for loving me. I thank you for coming for me. I thank you for seeing value in me. But I couldn't see it in myself. And you've done that not just for me, you've done that for every person here. And for that, Lord, we are thankful. And I ask, Father, that you would just continue to speak to people's hearts. May we all assess our lives. May we assess where we're at and how we respond. May we look at things clearer than we ever have. May we worship you, O oh God, the God of the scriptures, based on the scriptures. May we never empty your name of its glory and its goodness. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. Amen. Before you leave, let me ask you guys one thing.